Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 11. And Lord willing, we'll get through verse 17. Hebrews 12, 11 through 17. Now, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight the path for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears Lord we ask that you would Fill us with your spirit that we might have ears to be receptive to your truth here tonight. That we might have a heart that is tender and ready to be molded and shaped by you. That we in our spirits, Lord, would desire to become more and more like you. Mastering our flesh, mastering this part of us that still is yet to be redeemed by you, Lord. And all in all, we ask this for your glory and your great namesake, that you might be pleased. And so tonight, as we worship you, and we give you the glory and honor that is due your name, oh God, we ask that you would use this time to be pleased with our worship and to mold and to change us. Ultimately, Lord, it's all for your glory and your great namesake. And so we ask this in your precious son's name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, we're right in the middle of this section on discipline here. It's probably not the most popular topic to start the year on (laughs) in most churches, although you do have people making all kinds of, you know, um, New Year's resolutions and whatnot. And so there's an element of, you know, wanting to be a disciplined individual in these new aspects of your life or an aspect of your life that has been neglected over time or whatnot. So perhaps it is fitting to begin the new year right here in the middle of this section on discipline in Hebrews 12. And You know the story at this point. These Hebrew believers have been struggling. 
They've been under persecution and it's been so hard and so hot and so heavy. And many of them have just abandoned the faith and turned back to their old ways, their Judaism. And so the writer of the Hebrews is writing to them to shake them up, stir them up, to tell them, keep on keeping on. You you can't turn back. You can't turn away from Christ because there's nothing else to turn to. And this section that we just read for our scripture reading, the section that we're going to look at tonight, this is the last of those warnings throughout the entire book of Hebrews. There have been seven of them, and we have pointed them out as we came to them. This particular one here is a poignant one. He goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. The writer goes back to the book of Genesis. The writer goes back to the Psalms and to Proverbs as he pulls from the Old Testament here to remind them and to issue them this last and final warning before he moves into the section on why the new covenant is so much greater than the old covenant. And then finally closing up his book. But as he finishes with this last warning, here (coughs) he gives us some practical implications for what it's going to mean for us to keep on keeping on with Jesus. Now, we're right in the middle of a section, so it's wise for us to go back and look where it begins. And in chapter 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he tells the writers to consider him, Jesus All of this context that we're about to look at must have the context of considering Jesus. Otherwise, this text becomes rank moralism. Now, I've heard this text. In fact, I've heard this text preached before out of its context in the way that here's what you need to do. You want to be a good Christian? Well... What you need to do is you need to start being peaceable with other people. Watch out for that root of bitterness. You need to pursue holiness. And what do we mean by holiness? Absolute perfection. Root out all that sin. Get it out of there. It's your responsibility, believer. Turn up that heat and get that sin out of your life. You want to be a disciplined Christian? You want to lift up your drooping hands? You want to strengthen your weak knees? Get to it. I've heard that kind of preaching before. I hope I've never preached that kind of preaching before from this text, but it scares me that I might have at some particular point because this isn't the first time that I've taught Hebrews. The context, the point is, Jesus is... Amazing! 
Jesus is glorious. Jesus is the author, the perfecter of our faith. He is everything to us. He is absolutely the pinnacle and best of all beings. He is worthy of all our worship, all our honor, all our praise. He has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. He is the one who set before himself this joy. The Father called him to do it. He determined to do it. The Holy Spirit strengthened him to do it. And he, despising the very shame that came with the cross of Christ, with the wrath of God upon him, with his own creation turning against him violently and rejecting him, he still endured. He saved you. He's working in you. He will perfect you. You're suffering right now. He knows it. He suffered greater than you ever have. And he's with you right now as you're suffering. He knows. He empathizes. He can sympathize with you because he has become the perfect man and endured everything any man can do. And yet without sin. Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's the point. That's the focus. And so when the writer of the Hebrews here starts bringing this warning to fruition, these next few verses, it is not removed from the context of Jesus. He didn't turn from Jesus is the author of your faith and now it's up to you guys. Look at what Jesus did. Look at all that he did for you. Don't you feel bad you're not living up to your potential? That's not what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. When he goes through and he gives us these practical things that we can implement in our life, when he gives us this warning and kind of grabs us by our collar and shakes us up, it's all within the context of Jesus is working this in you right now. He has a plan and a purpose for you. He knows what's going on with you right now. He has ordained that it would happen. He is not frustrated or, whoa, surprised by it. He has you exactly where he wants you. (laughs) Almost. You almost made it up here. (laughs) So when we come to verse 11... For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. All the kids can give a hearty amen to that. And we as parents can give a hearty amen because our parents disciplined us. Hopefully disciplined us. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Nobody likes to be disciplined. But it has a good a glorious, a right, and a desired outcome. And he tells us here that the desired outcome is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, if you'll notice down in verse 14, when he, start, when he tells us these practical things, he says, strive for peace and for holiness. You see what he's doing? He's saying, God is disciplining you and it will yield peaceful fruit of holiness or righteousness. And then he tells you, strive for peace and strive for holiness. 
Now, some people will fall on one side of this equation. Oh, God's just going to do everything. I don't let go and let God kind of thing, right? And some people are going to fall on the other side of this and go, God did everything he possibly could, and now it's just up to you. Oh, won't you please? Oh, you've got to work hard. And sometimes it'll be a browbeating kind of way, and sometimes it'll be a begging, oh, grandmotherly, oh, if you loved me, you'd do this kind of way. Both of those ways of understanding this are unfortunately an error. When we come to the topic of sanctification, which means becoming more like Christ, right? Let's just call it that. There's other technical de- definitions we can give it, but that makes sense to all of us, and we understand it. Becoming more like Christ. There's two ways that the Bible speaks of it. Already done, in God's perspective, in God's sight, and happening right now. And both of those are true simultaneously. They're not mutually exclusive. Christ saved us, but we were elect before the foundation of the world. It happened in a moment in time, our salvation, though. Christ bore the wrath, but yet it wasn't applied until, for me, July 1st, 1993, when I bent my knee and repented and trusted in Christ as my Lord and Savior. It's a mystery. It's one of those things that is given to us in Ephesians chapter 2 that says that we are by nature children of wrath and that's a true thing and yet Christ elected we were elected in Christ from the foundation of the world sanctification is a similar kind of mystery we are indeed sanctified positionally meaning my position with Christ is secure If I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I have been predestined, I have been called, I have been justified. I know Romans 8 doesn't say this, but I have been sanctified. And then he goes on to say, I have been glorified, which is ultimate sanctification, if you will, right? Being as much like Christ as we can possibly be. That is true. But yet the Bible teaches us, right here is a great example, is that we are disciplined so that we can become what positionally we already are. It doesn't do any good to just say, oh, well, I'm, my box is ticked and I am secure in heaven. When God says, no, all of your life you will be becoming more secure with me so that when you get to heaven you will be like Christ. Both of those are true. Might sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but practically speaking, one, we are positionally sanctified, and one, we are progressively being sanctified. And if we try to segregate one of those truths from the other, we're going to end up in some dangerous waters. And in our Reformed circle, if you follow the ups and downs of trends in our circle, you know that just a few years ago, the Reformed Circle went through a very serious struggle with sanctification. It's kind of died down now, but I certainly don't want to think that you were unaware of it or you to think that I am unaware of it. But one of the things that we do when we come to this particular issue is we have to keep both perspectives in our mind. And then we need to understand grace because grace is going to be the thing 
that is going to get us through this sanctification process. If I think I have to merit something from God through my sanctification, I am going to be eternally struggling. I am going to be frustrated all of my life long day. That's what positional sanctification does for me. It gives me the grace to understand that I am not meriting from God some new thing, some new favor from Him, some new love, because I'm already positionally sanctified. Grace gives me the freedom that when I do fail, I can get back up like it says here. Strengthen your droop, or pardon me, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. I can do that because I understand Christ is the author and perfecter of my faith, right? But then that doesn't get me off the hook either. I still must pursue Christ's likeness. This is out of love. This is out of respect. When the Bible teaches me that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom... I understand that, yes, I am saved. Yes, I am righteous before God, even right now, clothed in his righteousness. Yet, I don't take advantage of that or take that for granted. In fact, I rejoice in that because I know I'm undeserving. Right? In fact, look at Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person, one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God, pardon me, by the death of his son, much more shall not we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have reconciliation. We are now united to Christ. He did this all while we were ungodly. And because of the gratitude that we have for that amazing grace that he would see fit to save me from my sins... I respond in gratitude and joy and worship and praise and living a life whereby I want to become more like him. So, because discipline yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, because discipline works in your heart peace and holiness, therefore, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Hear the words. The Hebrew believers, they're thinking, I am done with church. I'm done with Jesus. It's just too hard. I'm going to go back to the old ways. And he says, no, buck up. 
Discipline's good. It's going to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Lift up your drooping hands, man. Strengthen those weak knees. Keep on keeping on. Let's go. Right then. <laughs> One time I used, I used to run. I don't know. I, a long time ago I used to run. Um, Faith wanted to run a 5K with me. <clears throat> and I told her, well, we need to train, we need to prepare. And she was like, no, I, I'm, she was sure she could just do it. So we signed up and the day of the race came and we got our t-shirts and we were out there ready to go. And it was in mid-March and it was all foggy out. It was kind of cool in Upper Park and we had to run up and, you know, and then run back and it was, it was a fun little race, but we went out there and we started jogging and I'd been running, so I was in good enough shape to do it. And she was beginning to struggle. We got up to Horseshoe Lake there to the observatory and turned around and began to come back down. And she, and this is downhill now, so we had just gone the uphill and she was just worked. She was just tired. So I started running backwards. And cheering her on and go, come on, team, come on, Faith. Now, you know Faith. She hates that, right? Any attention given to her, she hates, just absolutely hates it. But she needed that motivation. And I'll tell you what, it was funny because the people runners around us were like, said several different times, several different people said, I wish I had a trainer coach me like that. And Faith, I could just see it in her eyes, daggers, just shut up, shut up, quit it. But I cheered her on the whole way, and we finally went down and we finished the race. Listen, the spiritual life oftentimes requires us to have somebody come along and say, buck up. Lift up those drooping hands. What are you doing, weak knees? Come on, let's go. Let's do this thing. Make strength the past because you are weak. You are lame. You, you might, do you know that? Spoiler alert. You're weak. <laughs> you are not great at this spiritual life, okay? Let me just tell you that right now. How do I know? Because I'm not either. <laughs> I'm a stumbler and bumbler myself. So we need people to come along and call us to be strengthened. An interesting thing, this is parentheses, okay? This is extra credit bonus material for you. Notice this isn't written to a preacher to go and tell the other people to pick up their droopy knees, their droopy hands and weak knees. This is to the congregation. We're responsible for one another. There is no passage in the New Testament that abrogates you making sure that your brother and sister in Christ is right with him, walking with him. You can't say, am I my brother's keeper? You are. We are each other's keepers. Now, granted, I know I have a greater responsibility. We're actually going to come to that when we get to Hebrews chapter 13. But we're not there yet. We're here when he's talking to the entire congregation. 
And he's assuming that as he's giving this message out, the whole congregation is going to respond with looking out for one another and looking out for each other. This is why it's so important to be in regular and routine fellowship. When we have studies, it's important that we get together and we're there at them. When we have times where we're just having fun together, it's important to get together. When I don't see you for a minute, I'm going to text you. Hopefully you're texting each other and calling one another and meeting up. <clears throat> this is our life together. We should be doing these things. Because we all know that from time to time, we're going to be those with drooping hands. From time to time, you're going to have these weak knees. From time to time, you're going to need to go down that straight path and have someone even going down with you so that your weakness may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I want the best for you. Hopefully you all want the best for each other. So he tells us in verse 14 now, strive for peace and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace. In Matthew chapter 9, you know the Beatitudes, you all know them. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus tells us. He tells us later on in that sermon that we should love our enemies and do good to those who persecute us in verses 44 and 45. In Romans chapter 12, in fact, let's look at that real quick, Romans 12. Verse 16, let's start there. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on you. Now, I, in Bible college, I, I, you, you probably have gathered this about me. I rub people wrong sometimes. And in Bible college, I had rubbed somebody wrong who I was working with in the kitchen. And she had gone to the supervisor there in the kitchen and said, you know, I just can't work with him anymore. And he said, well, you need to because... This is your job. This is what you're doing here. And she said, look, I've done everything that depends on me to live peaceably with him. Can I tell you something? None of you have ever done everything you possibly could to ever live peaceably with any person ever. Is that enough evers? (laughs) No one has ever done this except one person. You know who that is? It's Jesus. Yeah, it's Jesus. None of us have ever done this. We should strive to, as far as it's possible, as much as you possibly can. Let me sum it up like this. You want to live with a clear conscience. You want to live in a manner (coughs) where you can, at the end of the day, lay your head down on the pillow and go, thank you, Lord, for giving me the strength I tried. (laughs) You might not achieve it. You might not get there, but you want to 
as far as possible within you. In fact, in chapter 14, in verse 19, he says this, Whoever therefore serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. So we should be striving for peace with one another. Boy, I, the church is fractured by people who are not willing to be humble and not willing to strive for peace with everyone. It's so easy to take offense, to get hurt and to start to think things and then to go off and to just, you know, well, I'm going to go do my own little thing rather than seeking peace. There's a wonderful passage in the 1689 and should have brought it up here with me. And I can point it out to you later on if you want to see it. But basically it says that what we want to do, what we promise to do, what we desire to do, to strive to do, is to live in such a way as peace with each other within the church that even if somebody thoroughly offends me and I don't think the leadership is doing everything they should do, I'm still going to continue to worship the Lord in this context because I trust him and I believe that he will work out his great will. That's, that's amazing faith. <laughs> to not see it, to think, boy, everybody's getting this wrong, but yet still at the end of it to say, you know what, I'm going to trust the Lord. <clears throat> that the Lord is doing it. <clears throat> And for holiness. Now, holiness here in verse 14, I, he, in no way do I think he's saying you should be perfect. I, a, a lot of times we read the word holiness and we think you've got to be perfect. And what might come to your mind is that passage in 1 Peter 1, right? Look, it's just a few pages to your right. 1 Peter chapter 1. It says in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's easy to read that and go, man, that sounds like perfection. If there ever was a verse that said, you better be perfect, right? But notice what he's saying here, as obedient children. What's our context? Children being disciplined by the Father, right? So it's a similar context. Different authors probably, but similar context. And he says, as obedient children, what we're to not do is be conformed to the former passions of ignorance. Don't go back to the way you used to worship. What's the problem in Hebrews? They're thinking about going back to the way they used to worship, right? The context is even more similar. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. What he's saying is live like a Christian. That's what he's saying. You worship God now, live like a Christian. Don't go back to your former ways of ignorance. Hebrews, in our context here, he's saying don't go back to Judaism Live like a Christian. Live like Christ. Look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners. Peace with everyone 
and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So when we pray, Lord, may we walk out of these doors knowing you better and loving you more than we did when we came in. One of the things that we're asking in that prayer is for holiness. Loving Jesus more, knowing him better is holiness because it ought to cause us to live more like Jesus Christ. So strive for peace. I want to be at peace with everyone as much as I possibly can. And holiness, I want to be more like Jesus Christ. I want to be more like him each and every day. Hopefully I'm more like him than I was last Sunday when I preached. And Lord willing, I'll be more like him next Sunday when I get up to preach. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, I, I, I don't know how many of you have heard sermons from the book of Hebrews before, okay? So I am, I understand I'm coming from a place of, I have heard sermons, bad sermons from the book of Hebrews before. And this root of bitterness comes up a lot. And some people will say, oh, this root of bitterness here, this is, this is the gossip. Don't you gossip in church. Don't you gossip. That's the root of bitterness. Oh, don't you become envious. You look at someone else, you see what they have, and you go, ooh, I wish I had that. All of a sudden, this root of bitterness takes up in your heart. Come forward, let me pray with you. Let's pray against that root of bitterness that's within you. Have you, you heard those kind of things? Am I the only one that's heard that kind of stuff? Okay, thank you, Raul. Get an amen from one. All right. <laughs> it's out there, okay? Now, what I want to do is I want you all, if you don't get anything else tonight besides love Jesus more, that's the most important thing. The second most important thing is to understand this, okay? So, who is he writing to? The Hebrews, right? They're Jewish Christians, right? Did the Jews know their Bibles pretty well? Yes. So if he is bringing up a phrase that appears in a prominent place in the Old Testament, it probably behooves us to go and look at that text, right? Because what's probably happening is he's directly alluding to it, right? So let's look at Deuteronomy 29. Now, if you know Deuteronomy, which I hope you do, someday I'll preach through it. But if you don't know Deuteronomy, it's kind of a sum up of the rest of the law. And it concludes with a blessing and cursing passage and then a reiteration of the covenant. That's 29, is a reiteration of the covenant promises of God that he is making with his people to go into the promised land, okay? So it's fitting that we're talking in covenantal language when we come to the Hebrews, right? Look down with me at verse 18. Beware. That already gets our attention, doesn't it? Because we know we're in a warning passage in the book of Hebrews, right? 
So if we see this verse and we see there's a warning here as well, it should click in our minds as it probably would have clicked with the Hebrew believers that he's giving them a similar warning that God has already given in the Old Testament. Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and to serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Sounds familiar, right? (laughs) To us. You see, to the Hebrew believers, when he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root or bitterness springs up and causes trouble, their minds are going to go back to Deuteronomy 29. They're instantly going to know what he's talking about here. So this root of bitterness is not the gossip. This root of bitterness is not slander. This root of bitterness is not your faith is weak and what you need to do is you need to tithe more because that's going to, you know, strengthen your faith and, you know, you just need to step out and sow your seed kind of thing. That's not the root of bitterness. The root of bitterness is not envy against somebody else's stuff. The root of bitterness here that he's speaking of is you becoming bitter against God and you leaving and abandoning the faith and going and serving other gods. And to the Hebrew believers, he's saying, you can't even walk away from Christ and go back to old Judaism and not have a root of bitterness. This is what it is now. Should have been mind blowing for them that here the very covenant that God gave saying don't go worship other gods is now being brought back up in their context saying don't go back to Judaism. Do you feel the weight of that argument? That is huge, monumental. This is one of the greatest arguments in the entire book of Hebrews. That the Jewish God that gave the covenant to the Jewish people is now saying, if you abandon my son Jesus Christ and go back to what I prescribed before, it's the root of bitterness. That's devastating. This might be the most harsh warning because of what we just read in Deuteronomy. Because none of the Hebrews wanted to go and worship other idols. There was abhorrent to them. When they left the exile from Babylon, Syria, Medo-Persia, and came back into the land, you know, one of the things that they never went back to was idolatry. You see, that's one thing Jesus doesn't come and confront the Judaizers in the nation of Israel. Because they understood the exile happened because of their idolatry. And they thought in their arrogance and their cockiness that they were over such sin. The writer of Hebrews points out, not only are you not over such a sin, you're committing that very same sin when you're going back to Judaism. And abandoning the Christian faith. Abandoning Jesus Christ. Abandoning the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness, that no desire to abandon Christ springs up and causes trouble and many become defiled by it. Right? 
That kind of thing festers, you know. This is what kills churches when there's two or three people that are just like, now, this is going to sound like I'm going back to slander, but what it is is they're denying the faith when they start going, oh, I can't believe he said that in a sermon. Oh, this or that. And people start focusing on incidentals rather than on Christ, rather than on the Lord, rather than on peace with other people and their own holiness. You see, striving for peace, striving for holiness are antidotes to this problem. Because if you're striving for peace, that's hard. And I need the Spirit's help to do it. And I need to look to Christ to see how he lived to do it. If I'm striving for holiness, I need to look to Christ and see how he lived so that I can live a life that is commensurate. That is consistent with how he's called me to live as a Christian. Peace and holiness are the antidotes, antidotes, antidotes to this kind of root of bitterness springing up. And the frustration, the negativity that has been associated with going through a difficult time and difficult struggle and thinking, oh, God couldn't have planned this. Oh, this surely isn't from the Lord. Oh, 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 right? Now, it goes on to talk about Esau. We'll come to that next week. I'm going to stop right here. Because I think this is a fitting place to stop. It's a fitting place, I think, for us to hear the words of the Lord and to realize, you know what, this is an area where we can certainly struggle, where we can certainly falter, because life is hard. And when the hardness keeps on going and going and going and going, and we aren't in that regular habit of looking to Christ, we will be worn down by it. Let me close with Second Peter chapter 3, which says, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Lord, we ask that you would help us to focus on you, Lord, because you and you alone are that point, that place, that thing that we need to look to in order to have our focus right, have our minds where they should be, have our hearts where they should be, our affections ought to always.